1: Steph, this is so exciting. i followed you for a while online, watched all your videos. Thank you so much for joining me. Welcome
2: to the Self Love Club. Thank you so much for having me, Belle. I'm so excited. I've listened to your podcast and I feel very honored to be here. So thank you for giving Aww. me this opportunity.
1: Of course. Now tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do.
2: All right. So for those that don't know me, my name is Steph and I'm a psychologist here to break it down. You've probably heard that on my TikTok and Instagram if you do uh, follow me. But yes, I've been a registered psychologist for seven years now and also recently completed a clinical psychology master's. So I'm in my final hours of becoming a clinical psychologist. I also am a board approved supervisor. So I supervise psychology students a content creator on social media, and a published author. So I've published a book, Food Jail, Breaking the Bars of Binge Eating.
1: Yeah, we're going to go through all your work and all of that soon, but take us back. Where did you grow up? And growing up, did you know what you wanted to do?
2: I thought about this and it's so interesting because I think anyone studying psychology or who's interested in psychology has been through something psychological, haven't we all? And for me, I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, nothing too exciting, but I went through my own struggles with eating. So in high school, diet culture was a very prominent, losing weight. I grew up in a Greek family where it was all about food, but my mom was very heavily into diet culture as well. So I grew up just believing it's normal to eat low fat. It's normal to diet. It's normal to want to lose weight. I didn't know any different, but it sort of went a bit too far. And then I recognized I had this massive struggle with food, went through a nine year eating disorder. And that's huge. And I think back then it was very secretive. It was private. We didn't really talk that much about mental health. So I'm glad now that it is widely spoken about, but that led me to really want to become a psychologist and help women not go through what I went through, or at least have more awareness around the issue and that it's it's not normal to, I guess, count your calories every day and think you need to lose weight and have this idea that your worth is in your weight.
1: Yeah, that's a long time to be struggling with something, especially as hard as an eating disorder. Talk us through how were you able to get yourself out of that place because it's a long time and I guess you'd kind of become used to living that way.
2: Absolutely. And I think for anyone struggling with mental health or their eating, it does become your new normal. It does become a way of life. And you get to that point that you feel so hopeless or that things aren't going to change that you say, well, maybe this is just my life. Maybe this is how I need to be. And for me, I did see a psychologist back then. It wasn't particularly useful, but for me, the way I guess I got out, quote unquote, was I designed a life where the eating disorder didn't have oxygen, where it couldn't breathe because eating disorders are very secretive. They're very overwhelming. They take over your life and you create a life where there's opportunities for it to thrive. And for me, it was really about creating a life where it didn't have time, energy or space and exposing myself to challenging, really challenging situations such as the idea of Hey, I might gain weight in this process and I need to be okay with that because I think that's what holds people back from recovering is this fear of gaining weight and what that could mean.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk more about that soon because I know you've got some really helpful advice people in your videos. But when you did become a psychologist, what are some of now, and I guess then, what are some of the things that you're most commonly treating and seeing?
2: It's a really good question because people may come to you for one condition. Hey, I have anxiety. And then months of therapy, it is something completely different. And there's this term called transdiagnostic overlap, which means a lot of different conditions have similar features. So for me, many people will come to me with an eating struggle or disordered eating or an eating disorder, because that's mainly what I'm known for. But as we dig deeper, depending on the type of eating disorder, which we'll go through, there's often other comorbidities. It's very rare you see one straight eating disorder. I mean, that's what what I had. But now we see a lot of trauma. We see weight gain serving a function for many people who use it as this protective layer. We see a lot of um sexual abuse or sexual assault. We see borderline personality disorder. A lot of those people do have eating struggles, ADHD, another one that's come to the surface. So Mainly what I see is eating disorders, but it doesn't come without, you know, trauma, anxiety, depression, OCD, personality disorders, ADHD. So there is a variety of what we do treat.
1: Mm, And it's interesting what you say about you go to someone because you think something's a problem and then... They can look at it from a different outside perspective and say, hey, have you ever thought about this? And you're like, oh, you know, and and like you say, that crossover, which we're going to get into soon, you know, with uh, ADHD or ADHD, as I say in Australia, um, mm-hmm. there there is often like it's quite common for people with ADHD to have eating disorders, right?
2: Yes. Yes, for sure. And this is something as well I have seen more and more of and tapped into, and I think COVID and lockdowns is what really unmasked this coping mechanism. But yes, especially binge eating. We see a lot of binge eating in women who have ADHD or ADHD in women who have binge eating struggles because it is a coping mechanism. It's a way to get that dopamine boost and regulate your system, basically your nervous system.
1: Is it looking for that dopamine or something? Because I have this year being diagnosed with ADHD. And when I was younger, I had an eating disorder. So it's very wow. interesting there. Like I was probably looking for different ways to cope or I guess self soothe myself.
2: Yeah. Wow. But I didn't know you had that diagnosis this year. How did you feel?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got, I'm quite interested in it because I got diagnosed and my family's full of it. My, I'm like a lot of my friends are finding out about it. So yeah, it's really um, interesting. Yeah.
2: Wow. And isn't that interesting? You struggled with eating when you were younger. And I think the link can be a few different reasons. So I think number one is going through ADHD undiagnosed is traumatic in itself. You're constantly told, oh, you know, if only you applied yourself or sit still or whichever subtype you have of ADHD. There's different ones. You grow up internalizing these messages that something is wrong with me. And that's distressing. That sets your nervous system out of whack. And in an attempt to regulate our nervous system, a lot of us have learned to turn to food because growing up, our parents, our family members, our grandparents said, you know, don't cry, just have a lollipop. You go to the dentist, well done, have a lollipop. Food is so reinforced and used as a reward or used as a emotion regulation strategy from a young age when you're crying we don't really know many other strategies. So we learn to use food to self-soothe. That's the first one. And then with ADHD, there are changes in dopamine levels and people with ADHD do have lower levels of available dopamine and food gives us that feel good feeling, that dopamine uh, response. So that could also be another pathway to why we use food.
1: We're going to go through ADHD, but we you're seeing a lot more people finding out about it, which unfortunately I'm seeing a lot online of people going, oh, it's just a fad, which it's not because only some people will actually have ADHD and the stats are a lot lower than what you would expect, right? So what do you think's brought about, you've talked about COVID and everything, what do you think's brought about this, I guess, a lot of diagnosis for women who perhaps when they were children were missed?
2: Yes, women have fallen through the cracks for a few reasons because, number one, the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, this is the diagnosis book, the presentation of ADHD in there, it's very brain-based, it's quite male-orientated, and it's for children and adults. They've just lumped it all together. I think it definitely needs to be considered or revised because, the symptoms in the DSM, they're very brain-based. They're very physical. Whereas with women, we see a lot more emotional symptoms as well. Rejection sensitivity, trouble regulating your emotions and the inattentiveness, the hyperactivity specifically, it's not so much hyperactivity in your behavior. You're not that kid that's jumping on furniture, women were very different. They tend to sit at the back of the classroom and think, please don't ask me a question. Please don't ask me a question. They will get good grades. They will pass. They will scrape through. Whereas it's not a visual hyperactivity, but for women, it's more of a mental hyperactivity. It's the racing thoughts. It's the inner chatter. It's the difficulty interrupting people. And that's more the uh, impulsive hyperactive subtype. But I think as well, societal norms have meant women have fallen through the cracks that you should be able to cook, clean, organize. That's just expected. And when you can't do that, then that internalized voice, there's something wrong with me, gets reinforced. So women adopt coping strategies or masking. They don't show their difficulties because they want to be able to do these things that women are so easily expected to do. I'm not sure if that's been your experience or other people you've spoken to, but it seems to be spoken about more and more now
1: yeah and I think it's a positive thing that you're hearing more about it because it releases that stigma and I think you know for a lot of people they don't understand what it is and they think of Mm. a naughty child that's you know running around throwing a tantrum and it can present differently to that and I I think that's a good thing and I, I don't mind speaking about it because I think some people would feel a bit ashamed or want to keep it quiet but some of the best people are neurodivergent and you know, there's so many good things that come with it. But at the same time, I don't want to ignore some of the really hard things about it as well. Cause it can't, it's like you said earlier, it's, it's really hard living with ADHD.
2: It is, it is extremely challenging. And I think explaining to other people and getting that validation, especially when you are high functioning, you are showing up on time, you don't have every single uh, symptom. But the reason is, you overcompensate. And people don't know what it took for you to get there on time. People don't know what it took for you to maintain this job or this relationship. You can do it, but often it's endured with great difficulty that we don't see. It happens outside of our visual awareness for lots of people around you.
1: Yeah. Talk us through in your experience what that overcompensating can look like. Because yeah, you're right. It's a very internal thing that no one would know because you present like
2: everyone else does. Yes. Yes. So for example, perfectionism, right? Clinical perfectionism. We see a lot of perfectionistic tendencies with people who do have ADHD. They will rock up super early. They will check their work multiple times. They will go to extreme lengths to make sure there is no mistake. So the time, the effort, the organization that they will go to just to ensure that they're presenting as functioning on the surface is extreme and it takes up time and it can interfere with your day-to-day functioning. I had a a friend with ADHD the other day who missed her flight because she was at the wrong gate and things like that, whereas she would have made effort to get there early and book this uh, holiday and get there. But just that small detail was, was missed. So even with the overcompensating, it still can really get people down.
1: Yeah, I always thought that I had chronic fatigue because I would get so tired all the time and talk us through why it could be so tiring for people because I guess you're trying to do things and you're having to work your brain is having to work a lot harder to keep up, right?
2: Yes, and tiredness is such a great point and fatigue because it can be so many different things, but With ADHD specifically, a lot of people struggle with sleep. I'm not sure if this is something uh, you relate to, Belle, but many people struggle with sleep because the mind is overactive a lot of the time, especially if you go through a stage of hyperfixation, which means you're really into something, you're focused and your brain uses so much energy. And especially when you're in social situations, if you have rejection-sensitive dysphoria, or you're hyper-aware of potential criticism, you're literally hyper-vigilant about your behavior, about your moves. You're thinking about what they're thinking about, what you're thinking about, what they're thinking. And your mind's a muscle, and your brain's a muscle, and you are using this muscle so extensively that ultimately you crash. And this is where sometimes ADHD can be misdiagnosed as depression, because people do have those low episodes where they need to recharge and re-energize and to go from this high energy state to this low energy state can be quite confusing for people.
1: So say you've got someone with ADHD and someone who doesn't, can you explain to us what it's like for the brain in each? Because I don't think people quite understand that it is in your brain. What is the difference in the functioning for those people?
2: Yes, such a good question. So think of your brain as a motor right? It runs at a certain speed. And then think of your brain as having brakes. We can put on the brakes. Now, someone with an ADHD brain has different wiring. Their executive functioning is different. So the frontal lobe of your brain, which actually in people with ADHD, there's a 25 to 30% delay in people in the frontal lobe of that development, right? So this is why a lot of people with ADHD may seem more immature at a younger age, Because there is a delay in developing the frontal lobe, which does develop by the time you're 25. Now, that executive functioning, it's the CEO, it's the activation and initiation of starting tasks. It sustains your attention, it regulates your alertness, it delays immediate gratification. You know, adulting is what we call it. And the ability to calm yourself down when you're heightened, the ability to, um, not blurt out what you're thinking. In people with ADHD, that part of their brain is different and they struggle with those aspects. Whereas a neurotypical brain, they have appropriate sized brakes for the size of their motor. So someone with ADHD has like a high powered turbo motor brain with little baby bike size pedals. So they struggle to put on the brakes. That's probably the the best way I can describe mm-hmm. it. I'm not sure if that relates.
1: No, yeah, totally, because I think that's one thing that's hard to explain, because someone who's listening may not have ADHD, but someone they, and this is the great thing about raising awareness, is that someone they may know does, and so I think it's really hard, unless with anything, like with an eating disorder or anything someone goes through, if you haven't been through it, you don't know what it feels like, right, so I... It's really be about a sort of, not compare, but like sort of work out what the difference is and then allow people to understand what it is like. Because you're right, there's this misconception that we don't have enough attention, you know, attention deficit. But actually it's the opposite, isn't it?
2: Yeah, the name doesn't fit. The name should be changed. It's not a deficit of attention. It's a challenge in regulating that attention. It's either attention is full focused or attention is random it's a dial whereas neurotypicals we can you know move that dial where we need to but it's like there's only two settings with adhd it's full attention or random attention
1: yeah and that's where you know uh, treatment like medication i got told you know it helps you to that attention to and it helps it gives you that dopamine and t- i mean you could explain it way better than i can but just you know helps it Give it a place and and tick over, I guess. But how would you explain what medication and treatment does?
2: Yeah, so medication, there are different types, but mainly there are stimulant medications. Stimulant medications, which means it stimulates the frontal lobe. So all it does is it says shh, it quietens the frontal lobe, which allows it to focus on one thing. People describe it as the noise quieting down the chatter in their mind reducing. And because that background noise is reduced, you're more able to engage. And what it also does is it raises your dopamine levels. And dopamine helps with motivation and activation, getting started, maintaining that attention once you do begin. And that's what it does with medication. It raises levels of dopamine, norepinephrine, which helps you get started, helps you feel motivated and just quietens that chatter in your brain that is distracting.
1: Yeah. It's super helpful. And yeah, people that I've heard going on it will explain, you know, that the noise is quieter. They're able to sit down and focus. I just find at the end of the week, I'm not as exhausted. Like you still get tired, but it's yeah. not that fatigue that you might experience before because I I don't know, like as your brain, like having to work super hard.
2: Yes. It's working super hard during the day. And I think the issue people face is they often self-medicate without realizing they may rely on caffeine because caffeine does stimulate your frontal lobe. They may use drugs or substances or food. And I think this is why addictions can also get misdiagnosed. But actually, that's a coping mechanism for ADHD. So yes, medication does help in that respect. But I do want to highlight, Belle, that treatment is not a one-size-fits-all and how medication may impact one person Maybe be different to another person
1: yeah completely and whatever works for a person that's totally I, I personally can't imagine try to treat it without medication for me but like some people may not have the same response i've had and everyone's different right why do you think i mean you've covered a little bit of it why is it missed so much and why is it like we're getting these crossover or perhaps even a misdiagnosis like you said some of these things are a symptom mm. like a symptom or a coping mechanism you know like you know whether it's using alcohol or drugs or or an eating disorder why are those things being picked up maybe because they're more obvious and not the actual issue at hand
2: the thing is psychologists or therapists can only go off what you tell them and if you come in and you're like i am struggling with drugs and alcohol that's what we'll work with so we will go off what you tell us right and the other thing is We're not trained in this. A psychology degree, I've done over seven years of uni, and a psychology degree doesn't train you in ADHD. It may be very surface level, but it is training you have to outsource. It is learning that you need to do on your own. So first of all, I think the training needs to include this. I don't know if now psychology degrees are different but it's an area that you really need to learn about and essentially get expertise in, like I have done with eating disorders, with ADHD, but it's not something that's really taught. And anyone who's studying a psych degree will also, I think, find this as well. And so number one, if you don't have the training, the skills to recognize it, it can fly under the radar. Number two is what people report to us is likely to be either the Side effect of having ADHD, which may be a coping mechanism, anxiety, comorbid eating, depression, because they think that they're the problem. They've grown up thinking there's something wrong. It's them. They need to change rather than be like, Hey, actually my brain is wired differently. And this is what's going to work for my brain rather than trying to change your brain or change how you are to fit in with the rest of the world. Because like you said, there are many superpowers yeah. with ADHD too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I want to touch on those soon. Do you think that because it is such a specialized thing, like so many things are, that perhaps contributes to why it is so hard and not accessible to get a diagnosis? Because it takes so long and it costs a lot of money, which makes me Mm -hmm. feel really sad for people who aren't privileged to be able to afford to pay for a diagnosis like I was, because Mm -hmm. not being diagnosed has such detrimental Effects on somebody's life. And so is is that why you think it's so hard to get diagnosed? Part of the reason.
2: Yes. I work closely with a doctor who specializes in ADHD and more often than not, it is hard because A, it's expensive. Many psychiatrists, and I want to highlight this, if you are looking for medication for potential ADHD, you have to be diagnosed by a psychiatrist. Yes, a psychologist can diagnose and a psychologist can provide a report and give you some collateral information to take to your psychiatrist. But psychiatry is very expensive. They're booked out for months. There's not many public ones available, so you do have to pay privately. And getting that is is challenging for many people. So I did see that and I wanted to offer something cost-effective. And this is why in our online clinic, we offer an ADHD exploration session, which just helps you understand what is the process what is the pathways? What are the costs involved? Because I think it's not clear out there until you get hit with the bill or you get told the process. I think it can be quite a shock to people. So providing a service that gives people information and potential pathways is a really great start for people who may be considering, hey, is this me?
1: Yeah, because imagine going through that and you don't actually have it, you know, like it would be good to just to get some sort of clarity before you go down that way and then have to pay a lot of money. So do you think you're seeing a lot of people maybe because of, you know, it turning up on so much on things like yeah. TikTok? It kind of annoys me a little bit that people are self diagnosing so much, but then perhaps part of that is because it's not that easy to get diagnosed. Yes.
2: And look, I think people like to fit a template. The brain likes answers. It wants a complete picture. And if I'm fitting this template, that makes me feel good because I have an answer, I have an explanation and I feel validated. And yes, little short snippet videos such as the ones I do, I want to put a disclaimer, is not the full picture and it's not a diagnostic tool. It is just to get you to start to think about what you may be experiencing. And for anyone who thinks they may resonate with the ADHD symptoms, I really encourage you to go look at the literature out there, read up about it, see if you resonate with it. But it's important to know that even if you do have ADHD, there's not one treatment that fixes it, right? There's no psychological intervention for ADHD. It's symptom management and it's working on those comorbid psychological conditions, anxiety, depression, eating, which is more of what we do. Whereas ADhd the the treatment is medication it's executive functioning strategies organization planning etc, and then the psychology work as well yeah. so yeah just be mindful if you are seeing things online there is a lot of overlap in symptoms and not to self diagnose without professional support
1: yeah we will move on to eating and some of your other areas of expertise soon, but you do talk about the coping strategies and you know while someone might decide to go around the medication route and that may really work for them. There are other things you can do to help. So from your professional opinion, what are some ways that someone who is struggling with ADHD or has been diagnosed or someone, maybe if they're wanting to learn because their partner or someone they know has, what are some things that can really help?
2: That aren't medication?
1: Yeah. Like other strategies. about, about yeah, yeah. And I just
2: want to okay. make sure people are aware there is no substitute for medication, but of course there are symptom management that you can onboard. And I think, The first step is awareness. Awareness precedes change. And you need to be aware of how does my ADHD impact me, impact the people around me, get in the way of my work? Because again, your ADHD blueprint is different from the person next to you. So developing your awareness and thinking, well, you know what? I'm always late to stuff. Okay, let's work on that one thing. What can I do to help with my lateness or time management? and then finding the strategy that works. There's a lot of ADHD apps that people use, setting timers, telling your friends to lie about the time that an event starts, or just letting people around you know, I have ADHD and I might be late. And that is such a relief to so many people. But obviously, if it's a job interview or something important, maybe don't use that strategy. But yes, (laughs) I think awareness around what it is you want to work on. The second thing is, regulating your nervous system because you've got that dopamine challenge and dopamine is that feel good hormone that helps you get stuff done finding ways to get more dopamine in your life for example exercise mindfulness um, going on hikes I use a lot of physical techniques because physical strategies are the quickest to get that dopamine boost other things things that give you joy and excitement socializing going out with friends uh, Working on a project, people with ADHD are very competitive and love a challenge. So if you can have a creative outlet that challenges you and inspires you, that can help you get dopamine in adaptive ways because many of us get dopamine in maladaptive ways. So it's about seeing what makes me happy and how can I get that dopamine boost in my day-to-day life.
1: Mm. And also the sleep factor. You know, I've seen some stats that people, 80% of people with ADHD, can struggle with sleep issues and I think not even anyone can struggle with sleep issues these days so and I find when I'm really tired that's when my ADHD gets worse like uh, if I'm tired it just I mean I think everyone can relate to that it makes everything harder so trying to focus on trying to get the best sleep you can right and maybe focusing around that time I sort of have to put a few things in place so that I'm not doing mindless scrolling to whatever time at night you know because I could very much get down a Hyperfixation, fixation, you know, wanting to look up all these things online. And then before you know it, it's the middle of the night and you need to sleep.
2: Yes. And there's different problems with falling asleep. People may have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep or waking up, feeling groggy when you do wake up in the morning. And I guess it's about figuring out what type of sleep do I struggle with? Is it waking up? Is it, you know, falling asleep? And The main thing is once you figure out what type of sleep you're struggling with is to try different strategies that might work. Definitely with screen time, that's a big one. Trying not to stimulate your brain before bed, right? There's the three, two, one rule that people use. Try not to eat three hours before bed. Try not to work two hours before bed and try not to have electronics one hour before bed. It could be about putting your alarm in the other room to help you physically move out of bed in the morning. It could be trying to find a lifestyle that works for you where you don't have to wake up super early or you don't have to go to bed super early because I think it's really important to find careers or jobs that suit your ADHD if you can. Many people with ADHD are entrepreneurial. They have their own business. They're creative and they're very, very good at it. They're very good at running their own business. They're awesome at podcasting, all this stuff, because it really fits into what works for them. But coming back to, to sleep, is there anything you've found that's been useful?
1: Yeah. Well, I sometimes struggle to get to sleep. It's like your brain can be so busy and you, you're tired, but then you get a little bit of that, like a boost of energy before bed. Um, mm. and I've, I've through my own like learning how to, deal with that because I do at times have insomnia but I'm I'm pretty good at sleeping when I do sleep it's just getting to sleep so I find that I need to listen to whether it's a a meditation or like a podcast and put a timer on it so it turns off and that helps me um but yeah definitely staying off your phone because the more you're stimulating your brain I try to read before bed because it makes you a little bit tired just reading um but yeah that's one thing that I've had to do and then you know taking and taking things like and I'm not saying everyone should do this but you know taking um some magnesium or something and just setting up that. Uh, I just try to wind down. If I work too late, I, it just put, it puts it worse for me and I just end up awake later. And yeah, so it's just having those, um, I guess routine for me has been one of the biggest things. Yeah. Which I'm a quite yes. a routine person. Yeah.
2: Routine 100%. And you've mentioned a lot of really fantastic sleep hygiene tips. So using your bedroom only for Sleep, right? I have this big belief of not using technology in the bedroom, full stop, isolating it because your brain learns to associate certain activities with certain spaces. And then, like you said, natural supplements can be useful again, use at your own discretion melatonin, magnesium, whatever it may be. Trying to do a meditation or listen to something relaxing by neural beats, find what works for you and try to track your sleep and see over time what helps and what doesn't help as well.
1: And you did talk about, and I want to find out more about it, the rejection sensitivity. Is it dysphoria? That last word I always get stuck on. What is it first of all?
2: Yes. This is a new one coming to the light as well. Rejection sensitive dysphoria, RSD. Now it's not a diagnosable condition. It's an extreme emotional sensitivity to pain triggered by the perception that a person has been rejected or criticized by important people in their life. Essentially, it's a, it's a symptom that gets triggered when we also feel we're falling short of our own expectations or the expectations of others. Now, the Greek word dysphoria is, it means difficult to bear. So this emotional pain feels difficult to bear. It's a unique symptom that we see in ADHD. Yes, you can experience it if you don't have ADHD. I get asked that a lot. But essentially, I think the reason people have struggled with it is because growing up, they often feel or felt like they weren't meeting their own expectations or those around them, schoolwork, friendships, personal life. So they've learned to be hyper aware of people's tone of voice, the way people hold themselves, their body language, their facial expressions. And because they've been told growing up quite often that their behavior wasn't right or they've done something wrong, they're looking at life through the lens of, I'm going to get told off or I'm going to be rejected. So then they perceive any slight demarcation in people's behavior, facial expressions as being critical or rejecting and they feel really, really bad about it.
1: Yeah, this was something which, when I got diagnosed, this was where I scored highly and I could so relate to it. And it was kind of a relief because I just thought I was really hard on myself and I was a very emotional person because sometimes something would happen. I'd get way more upset than other people and I couldn't really explain it, but this it kind of made sense to me. Yeah.
2: Yes. And I think it's really provided people a big relief putting a name on it, right? Because it's important. And when you can recognize that you can manage it, right? Awareness precedes change. And if you can say, oh, I'm noticing that I'm feeling rejected in this moment, or I'm perceiving that person to be criticizing me, you can then start to work on it and really challenge these beliefs and say, okay, well, where's the evidence they're rejecting me? Or if you feel safe enough and comfortable, say to that person, like, hey, I just want to clarify, are you criticizing me because I am sensitive to that? Da, 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 and just letting people know that that type of thing does affect you so they can be mindful. But again, trying to work on your own inner dialogue when it comes up, the ability to step away, observe rather than being a victim to those immediate urges and impulses and beliefs that come up for you.
1: Yeah. What are some ways that you can, I guess it's building up your self-esteem and your self-worth What are some ways that you can help with that? Because, yeah, at the end of the day, it does come down to your reactions and it may be something you have, but you do need to. And it's something I realized even before I got diagnosed, we're responsible for, you know, um, how we feel. And so we need to help ourselves improve that and make ourselves feel better about ourselves. So what are some things you think might be helpful if someone's struggling with that?
2: Wait, before we go into the remainder of this episode, I have to tell you about something so cool that I want you to be a part of. I was getting inundated with questions about how do I manifest my dream life? How do I track lucky girl syndrome? What if I have anxiety? I can't concentrate. I procrastinate and I needed to do something about this. So I unleashed My Unchaining Your Brain Method in the form of an online course. So over the years of becoming a psychologist, I have developed the ultimate method that helps you attract your dream life, relieve anxiety, and rewire negative thoughts in your brain. Imagine if one strategy could help you change the way you think, feel, and respond to situations forever. Well, now it can. March 14th, I am starting the Unchain Your Brain course. These are four easy modules which you can do through your own phone or computer. Our next Unchain Your Brain program starts in the next two weeks, so make sure you don't miss out. Click on the link in the show notes to find out when the next course is and I cannot wait to see you there. Yeah, so the first thing is Don't avoid situations where you think you may be rejected or criticized. Exposure is extremely important because exposure gives you the chance to prove your beliefs wrong. So you might think, oh, if I go to that party, I'm going to get rejected or people won't talk to me. But then if you don't go to that party, you'll never know if that was true. So number one is exposure. Expose yourself to situations that make you uncomfortable that you really do want to avoid. And the second thing is, learn to do a thought audit. So when you have these thoughts that come up, notice them, audit them. Don't just become a victim because your thoughts are not facts. But the issue is people just believe their thoughts that come up. Isn't that crazy? They just think, oh, I'm having the thought that I'm incompetent. So I must be incompetent. Notice your thoughts as almost, it's as if you're a naive inquirer, observing yourself outside yourself and saying, oh, I'm noticing, I'm having the thought that My friend didn't want me to go because she didn't send me an invite, but she sent my other friend an invite. I'm noticing this. I'm noticing that. And become curious to your own brain rather than a victim to it. And when you observe those thoughts, then you can start to challenge them. So cognitive restructuring means challenging your thoughts. Where is the evidence that they don't want me at the party? Where's the evidence that they do want me there? Where's the evidence that I'm being rejected right now? what can I think instead? How can I reconstruct this thought? Now, it's not about thinking positive all the time. That's a load of rubbish. It's about thinking effectively. And is this way I'm thinking going to get me to my desired outcome or goal? I imagine, Bell, when you started this podcast, you probably had a lot of those thoughts going on. How did you, I guess, rise above them? Or do you have those thoughts? And how do you deal with it?
1: Oh yeah. Do it? They've definitely, definitely show up in life. I, I was already working in radio, so it was kind of what I did for a job anyway, but it's funny. I think the doubts for me came later than starting the podcast. I just, and I think this is where, you know, people say superpowers of ADHD, watching how I put it together. I'm actually really proud of myself because we do get hyper fixated on things and we are very clever and we are like, you know, we, and so I just set it up, but it wasn't actually till a lot later that I, the doubt started creeping in. Um at the time I had none of that, it's sort of like that fearlessness and just focused, so focused on what you're making and doing. And then later you're like, oh, crap, like, you know, this is a little <laughs> bit scary or, you know, having to have vulnerable conversations. But, um, yeah, that came a lot later for me, which is probably, maybe that's strange, but I, I just, yeah, that's what happened for me anyway.
2: But I love that you said I just kept creating, I kept going because let me tell you, we all have this Vulnerable part of our brain that is going to get triggered. You're an imposter. You're not good enough. You shouldn't be doing this. And the part of us that comes to therapy, the part of us that listens to the podcast, that's our healthy adult part. And we're learning and we're growing. That part needs to negotiate with that other part and say, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for trying to tell me I'm an imposter today. But I'm going to do this podcast anyway and rise above it with valued action that moves towards your goals and what you want to do. Observe that voice, notice that voice. Thank your mind for the voice, but proceed in the way of desired action, no matter how you feel. Because if we listen to our feelings all the time, if we listen to every thought, we're never going to get stuff done.
1: Yeah, that's such good advice. And I was going to talk about strategies with coping with negative thoughts. You can have them, but you need to recognize their thoughts, right? They're not facts, they're feelings their thoughts and it is Mm. that you know whatever you're doing in life you have to just do it anyway and that's something I've always had and maybe other people struggle with that but you just have to keep going because if you let everything get in the way you just it wouldn't be no life and that's sad so you know what are some I guess ways of I I can't explain how to do it because I just do it you know like (laughs) I I don't really know like it's just you just got to feel the fear and do it anyway right
2: yes yes Number one is recognizing it. So if these thoughts come up that are negative, that are ineffective, notice it. Number two is: choose not to engage in it for so long. If you are working on a task, and then all of a sudden your attention shifts to, "I shouldn't be doing this, I'm not good enough," that distract, distract, distract. If you have ADHD, go do a dopamine activity. Jump on the spot for 10 times. Run on the spot. Go for a walk. Go have a glass of water. The minute your mind gets distracted or hijacked, we call it hijacked by these negative thoughts. Go do something physical. Get in your body because getting in your body pushes your dopamine up and your serotonin and it brings your cortisol and adrenaline down. Because when you're in a stressed state, when you're in fight, flight, your adrenaline is very high. So as soon as you notice that, notice it, but don't accommodate it for too long. Be aware of it. Second thing is challenge it. Start to challenge these. Beliefs, you know, even if you've come through an eating disorder or disordered eating, you still will have thoughts that come up. Should you be eating that? Maybe you should go on a diet. And sometimes you got to play out and say, okay, let's go down that path. We know where it ends up. I end up binging. It's not a weight loss strategy. Da 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 da. da. Sometimes you got to play out that thought in your mind. And therapy, mm-hmm. therapy is a great tool if you can seek psychological therapy or even self-help books that can help your brain, you can retrain it. You really can. Your thoughts are so able to be adapted through neuroplasticity because these beliefs have been with us our whole life. So we need to retrain that through consistent practice.
1: And with eating disorders, obviously you have personal experience. Mm -hmm. And when people think of eating disorders, whether they have one or not, you know, it's very, you know, there's there's certain, I guess, thoughts of what they are what are the difference in eating disorders and now when you're treating them is it less about treating it as like oh they're bulimic or she's has anorexia can it be a bit of because i know for me mine was a bit blurred i don't know what i would i mean i was bulimic but i was also restricting so i just refer to it as an eating disorder because even though i was diagnosed so how do you yeah what's the difference and how do you sort of see them and treat them
2: I'm really glad you asked this because eating disorders and disordered eating occur over a spectrum. And at the end of the day, it can waver. You can be bulimic, then you can restrict. You can, it doesn't really matter because the treatment, it aims to target those trans diagnostic symptoms that are common. Now, there are a bunch of eating disorders, as you know, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder that are characterized by this over-evaluation of weight, shape, and size. And then there are another bunch of eating disorders which aren't about body weight, shape, and size, but the ones about body weight, shape, and size, or binge eating, bulimia, et cetera, is really about creating a formulation for that person because everyone's experience is different, like you said. And if you're someone who struggles with that restriction binge cycle The strategy is regular eating is the first thing, right? Because what you restrict, you will end up binge eating on. So we want to try to establish regular eating patterns. And this is something I go through in my book as well. But it does need to be done with a licensed therapist because eating disorders are extremely strong. They're very normalized. They don't really go away.
1: In your brain, and you know, you had it for nine years. It's the worst I think I've ever felt in my brain. Like my brain was yeah. like, I don't like using the word crazy, but it I was, it was just took over and it makes you feel very sick and in a very dark place. I don't think people understand, you know, they may think, oh, you know, she just wants to look good. It's actually really hard living like that, you know, and because when you, and I think anyone who maybe is dieting, which I'm not a fan of, um, you're thinking about it all the time. So you're obsessing over it. So you can't get it out of your head. It's a horrible place to live, you know?
2: Yes, a hundred percent. And I think the biggest challenge in this day and age is eating disorders come in all shapes and all sizes. I recently had someone be admitted for refeeding who was overweight, who didn't fit that typical stereotypical underweight malnourished there are women who present as average or above weight who are restricting. And this is called atypical anorexia, which means it is a mental health condition. There is this term, atypical anorexia, a diagnosable condition in which people meet all the criteria of anorexia nervosa, the restriction, the over of weight, shape, and size. They've lost a significant amount of weight, but their weight isn't within that range that bmi range to meet anorexia so atypical really reinforces that it is a mental health condition and it can happen at any weight shape and size so if you are a woman who is heavily restricting and you present as average or above average weight don't think that your concerns aren't valid they are
1: yeah and i think maybe it's changed now but i remember when i was going through treatment you're right. Unless you were underway, you didn't really receive the same treatment. You'd be treated. I was outpatient, um, and and yeah, like uh, it it can be really hard because you are not meeting this criteria that you're sick enough. But you are mm-hmm. sick, and you yeah. I I want people to know that their feelings and and everything is valid because yeah. And I I just I love hearing of people getting better because I think when you're that mm-hmm. sick, you just don't think that it'll ever change. Do you? Yeah. Remember thinking that for yourself. And like, if you could go back and tell her something, like, what would you say to her? Cause it's just something you can't imagine getting out of, is it?
2: Oh, I've got goosebumps when you say that because you're right. It is something that affects 75% of women and one in three people with anorexia only reach a full recovery. So if I could go back and say something to myself and to all the women listening to this, it is that. Being skinny, losing weight, weight loss doesn't solve your problems, yeah? A physical goal, whether it's your weight, whether it's money, whether it's a car, doesn't solve an inner lack of self-fulfillment, an inner lack of self-worth. And every time those thoughts come up where you think, I need to lose weight, I need to be skinnier, ask yourself, what is it that losing weight or being skinnier will get me that I can't get now. Is it a boyfriend? Is it a girlfriend? Is it a job? Because when I do the actual deep work, people realize they don't have an answer.
1: Yeah, and you probably get to that weight you want to be at and you're miserable. You're not happy. Like it it just, it's a never-ending cycle. So it doesn't actually mm-hmm. achieve anything, does it?
2: No, and what people don't realize is, yes, you can lose weight and of people put it back on and more within a five-year period. They've done studies on this. But if you lose weight and you want to maintain it, you need to adopt a lifestyle that is extremely rigid, restricting, and focused on food, weight, shape, size, exercise. It is another level of life impact to even if you lose that weight, To sustain that weight loss, it's a lifestyle you have to adopt for the rest of your life. And you need to ask yourself, why?
1: Yeah, it's a miserable existence. It's not, I don't think, and you know, you see, I think it's being less glamorized now, but especially growing up, you know, we were all brought up on diet culture. Our mums were dieting, you know, it was all sugar-free, fat-free. And so I feel like this diet culture industry It raised us, but now it's all about like taking your power back and going, no, like we don't want to feel like shit. We don't need to, um, we don't need to fit those standards. And I'm really liking now that people are actually talking about it a lot because when you had your eating disorder, do you feel like no one really talked about it? And it was just, it was such a bit. I never told anyone for years. I just felt so ashamed. And, and now I think it's great. People are talking about it.
2: Yes. Try being a psychology student with an eating disorder, I felt like the biggest fraud. I'm like, dude, how am I going to help people? I'm so messed up. I This is not right. And it was so secretive. It was so normalized. And because I was high functioning, I was at uni, I was running a business. I was exercising seven hours a day because I was in the fitness industry. It just looked normal on the outside. And I would eat so clean in public and I would be influential and people are oh my gosh, like you're so healthy. But in private, they didn't know I was binging on macas and like tub of ice cream, packet of biscuits. Yes, we are in a great time where we can talk about it openly. And I do want to validate and understand that, yes, sometimes people are required medically to lose weight and there are ways to do it by focusing on health related behaviors versus weight loss, right? So if you can focus on How can I implement more vegetables rather than how do I cut, you know, sugar and all this out? How can I implement more movement? There is a way to honor your body and move towards health-related behaviors as opposed to, i got to lose weight, i got to lose weight.
1: I really loved your video and I wanted to talk about how you, you know, Mm. like what you need to do in order to stop binge eating, which is the very thing that I think people are doing when they're in that cycle. So tell us about that.
2: How to Stop Binge Eating should be renamed to How to Stop Restriction because restriction leads to binge, right? When people binge, they're like, that's it, tomorrow I'm going to wake up, I'm going to start anew, I'm going to go on a diet, I'm going to eat clean, and it doesn't last because the minute your body and your brain senses deprivation it gets scared. Your body is not designed to lose weight. It's designed to store fat to help you survive if you're in a a crisis situation. So if you're someone who struggles with binge eating, are you eating regular meals? Try not to eat more than four hours apart because that predisposes you to a binge. When you do eat, are you just trying to eat clean foods in public or healthy foods only to binge on junk food at night, right? You want a variety in your day-to-day life because if you have exposure to it, you're not going to go crazy over it. Chocolate doesn't become this forbidden food that I have no control over. It's about desensitizing and normalizing chocolate. I can have chocolate in my house and it's okay. I don't have to eat the whole block, but this takes time and it takes gradual exposure.
1: Yeah. What would you say to someone who may not have what is considered to be a, an eating disorder, but you know they do have disordered eating and And they're struggling with it and and thinking that they can even not live like this. What would you tell them? Because you are now living that life.
2: Yes. I think it's important to reflect on why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? What is my desired outcome? What is my desired goal? And how is this going to look in five years from now? Is this how I want to live? You really have to challenge the eating disorder part of your brain and put it in its spot and ask yourself, you know what, if I was living my ultimate life, if I didn't have this eating problem, if I woke up tomorrow, what would that look like for me? And for many people to say, they'll say to me, I could go out and eat without guilt. I could have a balance. I wasn't worried on my weight, shape and size. And it's about, okay, where am I now? Where do I want to be? How can I bridge the gap slowly? Is it therapy? Is it going out more? Is it sitting with discomfort? Is it Bringing another activity on board instead of binge eating. Cause people use binge eating for other things. It's not just all about weight, shape and size, but some people might do it to overcompensate. Some people may binge eat to deal with negative feelings and emotions because that's what we're taught as a child. A lot of women I work with, they binge eat because they don't have fun in their lives. They don't have any enjoyment and they're resentful and stressed because they're either trying to get pregnant or they've got lots of relationship challenges and food's the only immediate thing available that's socially acceptable. So working out what is my binge blueprint? Why is this happening? What are my triggers? Write it down. Journaling is extremely important. So using that awareness to facilitate that change can really be a great starting point.
1: Yeah. And taking it slowly, it can take a long time to, you know, be able to have things in your home, which may be a trigger food for you. uh, Yeah. Just Take it easy on yourself and definitely seek some professional advice. I personally don't know how I could have got through it without professional advice or professional help because it's just one of those things you feel so stuck in, you know?
2: Yes. And you need someone to be that voice and to point out other insights and to ask those really deep questions that we often don't ask ourselves.
1: Yeah. And also knowing that it's, you know, you need to feel your body to be able to maybe live the life you want and to be, to be strong and. And to be able to have the career or whatever it is that you want in life, if you're not feeding yourself, how are you supposed to do that?
2: Exactly. And there's so much more to gain from eating and nourishing than starving yourself.
1: I just wanted to quickly touch on the link between eating disorders and ADHD. What is, like, what are you, what, why is that? Because it's something that Some of us may have experienced and then later on in life when you get diagnosed, you're like, oh, that all makes sense to me now. What's the link?
2: Yes, and there could be a few different links. The first one is, I guess, the dopamine hypothesis. People with ADHD don't have as much access to dopamine and norepinephrine, which are the feel-good hormones. So they look for that feel-good feeling in food. They turn to food to Feel good to boost their dopamine because it's easily accessible. It's available. It's there. It's easy. It also could also, it also could be to deal with stress, right? Because people with ADHD struggle with emotion regulation, which means calming down, regulating their emotions and food. We're taught from a young age here. Don't cry. Just have a chocolate. Even when we go to the dentist here, have a lollipop. We're taught to manage our emotions or shut them off with food. So that could be another one and. The third thing is a learned response. We've either grown up around family members who had ADHD, probably undiagnosed, who have used food or alcohol. So we have learned to use food and alcohol as well. So it's important to develop your awareness around when am I doing this behavior? When am I binge eating? What else am I feeling in that moment? How am I feeling after? And if you can figure out what it is, oh, I got that email from the boss and then I wanted to binge eat okay, what can I do instead? Maybe I'll go for a walk. I'll delay eating that chocolate by five minutes. It's not about depriving ourselves. It's about figuring out, is this real hunger or is it emotional hunger? Or is it a strategy to regulate my ADHD symptom? What's going on for me? And then going from there.
1: With the hyperactivity, you know, the difference, and I guess it's one of those things that it's like, it's not one size fits all and it shouldn't be, but people think, you know, stereotypically. ADHD naughty little boys so the boys maybe got diagnosed more than the girls presenting differently hyperactivity you did talk about it being you know um mental in your brain you know you might have hyperactive thoughts what about like for me i can look back and think is that the impulsivity part as well like is the hyperactivity maybe is that why some of us may have had like issues not with issues with drinking but you know like we didn't have the best experiences we would drink or just get really drunk. I, I definitely struggled with that. I didn't have an alcohol problem, I would say, but I had to be quite careful because for me, that was where it kind of, I think, showed up a little bit. And it's like, you know what I mean? Like, is that the hyperactivity impulsivity where it could show up for people?
2: Yes. And just quickly, so there's three presentations of ADHD. You've got inattentive, then you've got hyperactive, impulsive, and then combination. Let's talk about the hyperactive, impulsive, and alcohol does have a big Link because at the end of the day, alcohol makes people feel more calm in the moment. It does quieten that internal chatter. But for women, if they are struggling with that impulsiveness or that hyperactivity, we can see it in relationships. Sometimes they may jump from relationship to relationship. We may see hasty comments, rash decision making, substances, drugs and not feeling satisfied. And this dissatisfaction can perpetuate impulsive decisions, shopping, spending, gambling, gaming, scrolling, the list goes on. So it's important to know that it's this more inner sense of restlessness with women, the internal chatter, um, making a comment, butting in, whatever it might be, but the impulsivity can vary as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just wanted to raise that because I think often we think of a hyperactivity as in physical behavior, but it can show up in mm. so many other ways. Also, the thing with relationships, you know, that dopamine fix, thinking I, I can definitely relate to this. I've had long term relationships and I am in one now, but it's, it's like you think, oh, no, this person's, you kind of get bored. And so you on to the next one and then you get bored again and then and so you do yeah, it makes sense to me a lot more now. And I saw something recently that if we just stayed in something, you may actually get the oxytocin, you know, that which actually would help with that what you're what you're searching for. So talk us through that a little bit.
2: Yes, and it was really interesting because I got asked, do people with ADHD pick fights or what's the relationship thing? And it does come back to boredom. People with ADHD have this pronounced intolerance of boredom. And what they do is instantaneously, without thinking it through, they seek stimulation, right? It might be drugs. It might be picking a fight with a loved one. It might be, um, sh- online shopping. It's just a solution to immediate itch that we need to scratch and we basically have to address the brain pain that sets boredom off. So if you're someone who experiences this boredom or this intolerance of boredom, it's really good to become aware of it. But as you mentioned, it can happen in relationships where you think you're bored of that person or it's not exciting anymore. So it's about being really open and honest what you need in your relationship and trying to meet those needs in ways that are adaptive and useful because we can meet those needs We can meet those needs in maladaptive ways. So we want to try to replace that with more adaptive ways of meeting that need.
1: Yeah, because it's uh, not as if you're in a healthy relationship and then you just throw it away. It's not like you can go out there and just find another one of those very easily. So you can kind of be not searching for something, but it's not something that you can just like it's just a shame to throw something good away just because you're bored, which I can definitely relate to when I was younger. Even to the point where someone's talking and they're talking too slow, sometimes I'm like, come on, like, speed it up a little bit. Like, my brain's moving faster than they're talking, you know?
2: (laughs) Yes, yes. And I think part of it is being okay with being bored. Yeah. It's okay. It's an emotion. It's it's like feeling sad. It's like feeling upset. It's not nice, but we don't need to get rid of it. We can tolerate it.
1: And, hey, what about your self-care? What are some of the things that you do and you recommend others do? Uh, you've talked about exercise a bit, which I think is a really great way to take care of yourself and your mind.
2: Love that. Self-care is a system, and if you don't do it regularly and integrate it into your life systems, it will become aftercare where you're looking after yourself when you are burnt out, when you're exhausted. So I want to remind people that self-care is a system that underpins everyday life and self care is different for everyone. And on different days, self care may be different. On one day, self care may be going to the gym, whereas on another day, self care might be sleeping in, getting that rest and not going to the gym. So it's important to ask yourself, what self care do I need today for my soul? Maybe I do need to have that block of chocolate. Emotional eating is fine as long as it's not your only coping, your only coping mechanism for me in particularly. I have routine and structure that really helps me. Without that, I probably wouldn't get anything done. I love waking up in the morning and just doing a brain dump in my phone, in my notes. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What do I have to do today? Just getting all those thoughts and feelings out helps me get some direction. And then usually some some form of movement, exercise, going to the gym, going for a walk with the dog and making sure I've got breaks in the day. This is so important. If you're listening to this and you're someone who sits in front of your computer and eats, go take a break at lunch. So important to have those brain breaks. And sleep, enjoyment, reward. It's so important. There's a term called recognition sensitive euphoria, which is the opposite of RSD. And this is the enhanced ability of people with ADHD to use praise constructively. So if you know someone with ADHD, give that person praise. They love it, they need it, and they thrive off it. Their whole life, they've usually been told, hey, I'm not good enough, or I don't have these skills. Praise. I don't know how I got onto that, but I know what I'm going to say is this. Self-care is also cognitive self-care in your mind. Talk to yourself. like You are that inner child growing up who received criticism cheerlead yourself. Tell yourself you're great. Tell yourself you're going to have a great day because what we think about, we bring about and we attract. The power of your words is so important. So self-care is not just physical, it's cognitive as well. And it's in your mind. There's social self-care, spiritual self-care. So just a reminder that there's lots of different self-cares and that may vary on particular days for you.
1: Yeah, I did want to also, before we wrap up, I did want to talk about your book. So tell us about your book for those who may not know. Um, you are an author and what's it all about?
2: Thank you. Food Jail, Breaking the Bars of Binge Eating. It started as a journal. When I used to go see a psychotherapist, he would encourage me to journal and write and do all the self-care things. But he said, you know what? Don't worry. You don't need to publish a book because he knew I turned everything into a business. I turned every holiday. i I just had to. So I just started journaling and I knew, I knew I was going to write a book one day. I saw a psychic and she was like, yes, in seven years, I see you writing a book. But I just never really finished it. I never got on with it. And then when COVID started, I had no excuses. I had to do it. And I just said, you know what, Steph, 15 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day. That's it. I set the bar so low that it was achievable. And if you're someone who struggles with motivation and getting started, lie to yourself, say, I'll do five minutes. I'll do two minutes. Because motivation comes from momentum and momentum is getting started on what it is you need to do. So the book essentially, it's four parts and it starts with my story. It's pretty deep. It's pretty raw. It's real. How I got into this eating disorder. Then it talks about eating disorders in general, what they look like, the signs, the symptoms, the impacts. Then part three and four is the self-help part. And we talk about how to help yourself cognitively in your mind and how to help yourself behaviorally, how to manage your eating, how to deal with social situations, how to deal with body dissatisfaction. And it's such a great tool and an interesting read. And I'd love to offer your your viewers a discount if they do want to grab it from my website. And I'll happily put that in the, the show notes, the code that they can use, but yeah, I think it's a great resource. It's on audible as well. If people don't like to read, or if you have ADHD and you want to listen to it fast, <laughs> you can put it on two times speed.
1: <laughs> Did want to touch on maybe people might have uh, an eating, eat, disordered eating, but then what is the difference between an eating disorder and something, say, for example, like body dysmorphia?
2: Good question. Body dysmorphic disorder, also known as body dysmorphia. It's in another category because BDD, body dysmorphic disorder, and I actually did my fourth year honours thesis on this, is about the preoccupation with a real or perceived flaw in your appearance. It's, it's more than just being thin, overweight, fat, thinking you're fat. It's, I have a really big nose and I need to cover it up. And yes, it can be body image as well. Men can have muscle dysmorphia where they never feel big enough. It doesn't actually come into eating disorders, but there can be a high comorbidity with people thinking that they look a certain way, which they actually don't. So that can come to the forefront. But in eating disorders, we more see body dissatisfaction. It's never thin enough. It's never good enough as well. Whereas body dysmorphic disorder, it's more a specific perceived defect such as your forehead, your hair, your hands,
1: I really like what you said before as well about motivation and it's created by action, which is something like if you have ADHD or not, like we always want to, how do I feel more motivated? But you're right. It's not until you take action that you actually create more motivation for yourself. It's not like you can just wake up and always feel motivated because I think that's something we're always searching for, right?
0: Absolutely.
2: And lying to yourself, I'll just do one minute. I'll just do the title on this assignment because once you actually start to do the thing that creates motivation and procrastination is a big one in ADHD. So if you just start reward yourself for when, when you get started, you'll find motivation will come more easily for you.
1: Hmm. Is that one of the biggest tips for procrastination? And um, Everyone can experience that. Is it just getting started and doing things, tricking
2: yourself? Yeah. And using an accountability buddy. So if you have a certain task that needs to be done, get someone to jump on zoom with you whilst you do it and they're watching you, right? I had, um, I watched a video and they said, if you struggle to get stuff done and you have ADHD, go to a library and imagine everyone is watching you doing this task because people are very competitive and it works apparently.
1: Before we wrap up, is there any advice that you would share with your younger self, knowing what you know now, all the, the work and experience and where you are now as a psychologist, especially after you know, your struggles, what would you tell younger Stephanie?
2: Oh, I love this. I would say to her to keep going despite what you think and feel. Keep going going keep trying because you are amazing you've got an amazing support system around you and there's nothing you can't do and you don't need to be skinny to do it you don't have to lose weight to achieve your goals and dreams you are lovable worthy and extremely capable at any weight shape and size
1: i love that and you have given us so much advice throughout this conversation is there any advice you would like to share to finish off with anyone listening
2: Well, first of all, if you are listening to this, well done. You are working on yourself. You are getting resources. You're listening to podcasts. And that is such a great thing to do and to have so many people living unconsciously, just going through the motions of day-to-day life, not aware of their behavior, their thoughts. So if you're here, you're awesome for being here. And just remember, it's a journey. It's not about waking up one day and your mental health is perfect. It's How do I deal with adversity when it comes up and balancing that self care with your goals, your dreams and just managing every situation a little bit more effectively at a time and it'll accumulate. You may think, oh, going for a walk today, that'll do nothing. But every time you do an activity that is beneficial for you, every time you challenge a thought, every time you don't lose your shit, that's going to accumulate. And like putting drips of blue ink into a beaker, soon your whole world is going to start to shift. So remember, what you do every day will accumulate and make a change.
1: Oh, that's so good. Hey, thank you so much for your time. I've so loved chatting. I feel like I could chat to you again. So perhaps we'll have you on (laughs) another time if if you would like to do that. But thank you so much.
2: Thank you. I would love that, Belle. And take care, everyone. And thank you so much for having me. Hold up.